the three years, the Apostle Paul was stationary in one city, the city of Ephesus. Now, in all of his ministry, which spanned four or five decades beyond the death of Christ, Paul remained in one place no longer than he did at Ephesus. His nearly three years there was his longest stay anywhere. And we are told in Acts chapter 19 by Dr. Luke that from Ephesus, while Paul was ministering there, that crossroads of that part of the world, the gospel was heard by everyone in the whole province of Asia Minor. Many churches were started, many of which Paul had a hand in in one or more of his three missionary journeys. As best we can tell, Paul never went to Colossae at all. We know that he had not gone before he wrote this letter, and there is no reason to suspect that he went there after he wrote this letter. However, through his ministry in Ephesus, sending out missionaries and his associates to various areas, sending converted people back to their homes, churches sprung up all over Asia Minor. His associate named Epaphras had been the one who started the church at Colossae. It was in the church at Colossae that Paul's friend Philemon, to whom he addressed one of his letters, which we have in the New Testament, was a member, as was the slave of Philemon Onesimus, who aided Paul in his ministry for an extended period of time. The church at Colossae evidently was a large church, an influential church. It was a, an aggressive and growing church where its rapid growth had opened its doors to some converts who still held on to a, a residue of the beliefs that they had had before they were converted. And some within the church evidently had blended what they had believed before they were saved with Christianity. And the result was a watered-down form of Christianity which seemed to diminish the position of exalted uh, greatness that God has given the Lord Jesus Christ above all things. Paul's overriding purpose in writing this letter to the church at Colossae is to make sure that the heresy makes no further headway in the church and that those who are mistaken are properly instructed. With his keen intellect, his tender heart, and his iron will, Paul combats the false teaching that would bring Jesus down a little lower than he really is. Colossae was located in the Lycus River Valley, about 100 miles from Ephesus. Someone has said that Colossae is probably the least important city to which Paul ever addressed a letter, and that is very likely true. There were three cities in that immediate vicinity, and this was the least important of the three of them. There was Hierapolis, and there was Laodicea, which is addressed in Revelation chapter 3. But it is to Colossae, the strongest of the three churches, that Paul addressed this letter. As you read the letter to the Colossians, notice contrast between other writings of Paul and other writings of the New Testament. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, 
He told them, I would like to write you deep and important spiritual truths, but you are not capable of receiving the strong meat of the Word. Therefore, I must give you the milk of the Word. When John addressed the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, the Lord Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, I am on the outside knocking on the door of the church trying to get in. What a contrast with Colossae. This church had not fallen into error. It had not been led down the path to heresy. It had not turned its back on the faith, but there was a threat there and Paul wanted to deal with it. And because of their basic maturity in the faith and their outlook and their acceptance of the truth, Paul was prompted to write to them the deepest, most wonderful things he ever wrote to anybody about the Lord Jesus. And it shall be our joy to hear things said about Christ that extend the doctrine of who Christ is to heights that are not equaled anywhere else in Scripture as we go to the book of Colossians. This was written in the same period of time as the letter to the Ephesians. It was written during Paul's stay there immediately after. And that letter also was entrusted to a man named Titius. And Titius was Paul's traveling companion. Now, I believe I may have said that Paul wrote during his stay at Ephesus. That's not true. Paul wrote this letter, the letter to Philemon, the letter to the Ephesians, while he was in prison in Rome, waiting to be tried before the court of Caesar, Nero Caesar, which trial, history tells us, ultimately cost him his life. Now, both this letter and the Ephesian letter deal with similar truths but with a different emphasis. Both of them deal with Christ, the head of the church, and with the church, the body of Christ. But in Colossians, it is Christ who is in the forefront. We view Jesus in all of his magnificence and all of his glory, whereas in Ephesians, written for the edification of an already maturing church, the church, the body of Christ, is in the forefront. And so Colossians tells us Christ is above all. Let us go this morning to chapter 1 of Colossians, verses 1 to 8, and consider love for the saints. Notice, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, here are the saved and the faithful. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This letter comes from the pen of Paul. We need to remember that Paul, in retrospect, was the dominant figure in the history of the early church. Paul is proof positive that one man surrendered to God can have an impact on the world. It was not the ministry of the Apostle Peter to plant churches in the strategic centers of the Roman Empire. It was not the ministry of John the Apostle or the other followers of the Lord Jesus to have that kind of an impact on the world. But by, in the space of three decades, planting churches at the population centers of the Roman Empire, Paul the Apostle eventually changed the course of world history. For from the Roman Empire, Christianity 
has circled the globe. And the world has heard the good news because one man in the face of overwhelming odds, a hostile government that ultimately took his life, an unbelieving nation to whom he belonged who rejected the gospel rather than giving up and giving in Paul turned his attention to the Gentiles, to the other nations, and they received the gospel. He is the dominant figure in church history. He changed history himself. Now, we know it, but sometimes I think we forget and we take it for granted. This letter to the Colossian church was dictated by Paul himself to a scribe, to a secretary. We hold in our hands, look on with our eyes and receive into our hearts because it is God's Word, a letter that one of the great men of all time himself wrote. And because it is Scripture, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And it is applicable to us and so, with a thrill of emotion, let yourself understand that here are the words of Paul himself, inspired of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us. He identifies himself as an apostle. Now, the word apostle means one who is sent. In its deepest meaning, I suppose it means messenger boy. Paul was God's messenger. Come by the will of God, he says to speak the truth. He was appointed, and thus we note that the calling of God is not something which is sought. Rather, it is something which is given by the sovereign right of God Almighty to choose and to use those whom he will. Paul certainly did not seek Christ. Paul was a Pharisee, the most conservative of the Jews. He was very devout. He believed as they believed. He was very sincere, and he is evidence that sincerity is not enough. For he was devoting his life to the destruction of this new cult, as he thought it was, called the way, those who followed Jesus of Nazareth, when he was struck down to his knees by a light from heaven. And he was converted and appointed to be an apostle. Paul was only what God had made him. You know, sometimes people point with pride to others or some take pride in themselves on being self-made. There are no self-made men. There are only men like Paul who have allowed God to make them or men who have refused to allow God to make them. He says, and from Timothy... Our brother, Timothy, Paul's faithful companion of many years. Timothy, a third-generation Christian whose mother had been won to the Lord by her mother and had in turn led Timothy to Christ, Paul's son in the ministry. And then he says that they are saved and faithful. Now, he writes to the saints, that is, to all believers... The word saint has taken on a common usage in our day that was never attended, intended in uh, the beginning. The word saint simply refers to someone who is saved. And Paul addresses himself to the saints, that is to all believers, and to the faithful brethren. 
For you see, even then, even that long ago, there were many within even an aggressive and growing and influential church like Colossae who were marginal Christians. They were nominal. And Paul was always very honest. He never covered up the truth. And so he wrote to those who are saints and to those who are faithful brethren. He writes, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is his apostle. Jesus is his human name. Christ is his divine title, the Messiah. Thus, Paul, at the beginning of the letter, establishes that unlike the false teachers were trying to say, Jesus of Nazareth was God's Messiah, and he was God in the flesh. Now, he says that some of them are faithful. Faithful means trustworthy, but also faithful means full of faith. It means trusting. Many people are consistent with activity, consistent with attendance, consistent in a routine who are not faithful Christians because they are not full of faith. You see, God the Father sires no cynics. A cynic sees the price of everything and the value of nothing. God the Father sires no cynics. Faithful does not only mean trustworthy. That is only half of it. It means trusting. It means full of faith. That is why we are called believers. Now notice what he says about the church. He says they are in Christ at Colossae. Every Christian operates in two spheres of existence. Your habitation on this earth and your position in Christ as a Christian. That habitation may be anywhere on the earth. And we must faithfully serve God in both areas of our responsibility. We are at Yukon, but if we belong to Jesus, we are in Christ. And never let us forget it. Happiness, joy, and peace are not dependent on our circumstances. They are not dependent on anything outward and external. They are not dependent on wealth or its absence. They are not dependent on acceptance or rejection by this world in which we live. Our happiness, our joy, and our peace are dependent only on our continuing relationship to and our eternal security in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When we are united with Him, then His purposes, His hopes, His endeavors become our life. And then notice in verse 2 that He wills them grace and peace from God the Father. His grace is that which, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, gives us faith. And that faith produces peace with God and creates the possibility that every day as we walk in the Spirit, we may experience the peace of God, which passes all understanding. And then notice in verses 3 and 4, here is the mark of the Christian. Here is the mark of the Christian. 
An evangelical writer named Francis Schaeffer, who has had a considerable impact on modern Christianity, wrote a little book about the book of 1 John entitled The Mark of the Christian, which, uh, of course, is love for each other, according to 1 John 3, uh, 1 to 9, and 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 5. I thought that was quite original, that, that phrase, the mark of the Christian, but in studying for Colossians chapter 1, I discovered that that was stated first centuries and centuries ago by Polycarp, the disciple of the apostle John, who was pastor of the church at Smyrna, which is addressed in the book of Revelation. The mark of the Christian is love for the brethren. Paul says in verses 3 and 4, We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. He was thankful for their faith and their love. For you see, faith in Christ produces love for others, period. It always does. It cannot help it. The Christian life is the life of Christ, so Christ does love. And when there is no love, it is proof, as Romans 8, 9 says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. It produces love for others. You cannot have faith in Christ without love for others, for faith and love are the two legs on which the Christian stands. There is no such thing as a solitary Christian who stands alone. For the life of Christ within demands Christian fellowship. Notice that his thanksgiving precedes his intercession. Whether it is your situation or the situation of another, you must always have a heart full of gratitude to God before you can pray effectively. And Paul thanks God for them and what they are and what they have become before he intercedes and prays on their behalf, which is recorded in verses 9 through 12 of this same chapter. Our faith in Christ, our correct doctrine must be accompanied by proper conduct, which is love for others, because Christ loves them too, and if you belong to Christ, He will love them through you. And if you do not, dash, cannot, dash, will not love them, you do not belong to Christ in any way, shape, or form. Love for God is proven only by love for others. Faith is the root of the Christian life, and love is its fruit. And then in verses 5 and 6, here is the word of truth. Paul writes, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. We have a hope, but it is not a maybe hope. It is a hope of certainty. There is no element of doubt in it. We have a secure hope, which is promised in what Paul calls the word of truth. 
It is ours now because we belong to Christ, but we shall take possession of it when Christ comes and we go to be with Him. Because of His shed blood and resurrection, all is ours. And notice in verses 4 and 5, here are joined faith, hope, and love as they are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and elsewhere. Only those in Christ who love in truth have any genuine hope. For faith is the soil in which love grows and hope is the sunshine which produces the growth. It is called the word of truth, the gospel. Paul will go on to say here that false gospels grew around Asia Minor out of local beliefs. And in chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, Paul cautions the church at Colossae, do not allow anyone to take you captive according to the traditions of men rather than according to Christ. False gospels include local traditions. The true gospel is the same anywhere. And it works anywhere. And it doesn't need any adaptation or any refinement or any adjustments. It is the word of truth. Truth is the contents of the word, the gospel, which means good news is the character of the word. Paul says the gospel always bears fruit. A tree that does not bud is a dead tree. And a religionist who does not love, who is without fruit, is not alive in Christ. Where there is life, there is fruit. The gospel increases and grows it is more than a creed. It is a transforming power. It is truth, good news. It is a universal gospel. It is a productive gospel. It is a gracious gospel, and God ordained that it be carried by word of mouth. For Paul says, you have heard it before. Here is the word of truth. And then notice in verses 7 and 8, a consistent theme which runs through every letter Paul wrote. I have called this, follow the leader. Verses 7 and 8, Paul said, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Epaphras started the church. Epaphras was God's agent in the starting of that work. Now, there's something you need to be aware of. Paul never visited Colossae at all. Paul never visited the city of Rome until years after the letter he wrote called Romans. And yet, as one sent of God, as God's man, Paul wrote with authority and he expected to be honored and obeyed. It is a consistent theme of all Scripture. You see, Paul was an outsider, and yet he expected fellowship because he was sent of the Lord. He commends Epaphras to them as God's man. They had learned from him, and they were to continue to follow him, and they are charged not to blend 
Christianity with their local and former traditions. This letter was written for loving hearts who would respond in loving obedience to the word of the Father. Someone has said, faith lays hold of the cross. Hope looks on to glory and love in the meantime reaches out to a lost world. Our hope is that God's way is the only way. Christ is above all. His way produces all the happiness, all the peace and joy and lasting reward that are to be found in any way. I would remind you as it did for Paul that loyalty to Christ may cost you many things. It may set you at odds with this world as the Lord Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 10. It may cost you understanding and acceptance. It may cost you some relationships, but you as the church at Colossae must make a decision whether you love Jesus more than anything else. That is the decision. It is the only one. We do not honor Christ unless and until and only as we honor and obey His Word. Loyalty to Christ may cost you, but it will not cost you anything worth having. You must decide what means more to you. You must not do it on the basis of rational thought. That is humanism. It is not Christian. You must do it on the basis of faith. For in writing to the church at Corinth, Paul said in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. Faith takes hold of the cross. Hope looks to the future. Love reaches out in the meantime. The word of truth brings faith, which produces hope. Our hope is that Christ is above all, and that in following him, being marked as his disciple by love, being true to the word of truth and following his leadership, we may reach this world with the gospel. May we pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the fact that Christ is above all. I thank you for the fact that he gave his life and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. I thank you that he who knew no sin became sin itself, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And Father, I thank you for the gift of faith which has sprung a well of living water from within us which has produced love and hope. Father, the days in which we live are dark. Our world is turned away from you. The day is past in our own nation when our way of life as a whole nation is built on the Christian ethic as it always was. Father, we are a shrinking minority and the world will not accept us there is war with the world and there is often war within the church because of worldlings. But Father, I thank you that whatever the world may do, it cannot alter the fact that Christ is above all. And I pray that we will be a people with our eyes fixed on Jesus who will serve him, put his word and his way above all things 
in these last days so that the lost may be reached. Father, you know our hearts. You know our needs. I am claiming today that your word will do its work among us, that it will perform as your word promises, that it will lay us open to the light of your judgment, that we may see what we are and forsake our sin. Now, Father, make us like Christ. May we respond to him. May our lives take on his nature as you intended. Father, use us. Lead us. I thank you that you will. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.